Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. How significant was combat trauma in the ancient world? And how did ancient societies view people who had been psychologically affected by the brutal hand-to-hand warfare we associate with the ancient world today? To talk about this topic, I'm chatting with Owen Rees. Owen has written papers about the possibility of an ancient equivalent of PTSD in ancient warfare and how that trauma manifested itself differently in ancient Greek culture. Enjoy. Owen, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited. PTSD in ancient warfare and classical Greek warfare, this is something you argue that there must have been. Yeah, to an extent, I certainly do. Um, My work tries to separate the diagnosis of PTSD, which does not ex- it should not exist outside of the modern world. I don't think it um, fits anywhere else. It's such a socially, medically specific issue to the modern day and psychology can't really be picked apart from the society that creates it and talks about it. However, the diagnosis to one side, the phenomenon of basically a psychological injury as a result of military service, military activity for combatants and non-combatants. Um, yeah, I, I certainly um, fit in this, uh, in this model of it must exist, but probably didn't look the same as it does now. So how do you define combat trauma in the ancient world? Well, at its core, combat trauma is sort of similar to what I've said. What we're talking about here are psychological injuries, um, predominantly, as a direct result of military service, military activity, which immediately causes a few problems, uh, because how can you prove something has a... uh, is a direct result from warfare if it's talked about generally. So, you know, this is not an easy topic to uh, to address, but it kind of gives you the idea. What we're looking for is behavioral shifts, psychological changes that are negatively reported in the source material. It can't be positively reported because then you haven't really got a, a trauma. You haven't really got a, um, a syndrome of some sort. You have something different. So yes, yeah, so what we're trying to identify are psychological, behavioural changes and shifts that are generally considered negative. Not necessarily the person themselves are considered bad, but that it has a negative impact on that individual. And focusing on ancient Greek warfare in particular, where is the first case in the literature that we have surviving of someone who might be showing these symptoms? Well, this depends on whether or not you're happy to discuss fiction. Absolutely. Or we can go myth. We can go myth. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so fictionally, um, we see a brilliant book by a psychiatrist in the US, a guy called Dr. Jonathan Shea. He argued uh, back in the 90s that Homer's Iliad, in particular the behavior of Achilles, and Odysseus in the Odyssey, um, he argued that they uh, present kind of hallmark symptoms of what we now refer to as PTSD or the PTSD diagnosis that we now use. Within Achilles, we see um, his kind of berserker state. This is something Shea uh, focuses on a lot. He um, presents all the markers of what we call combat stress reactions. That is the physiological changes that the body goes under in combat stress situations. So he stops feeling pain. Um, He almost goes, uh, you know, it's it's all the stereotypes you hear uh, veterans talk about today, sort of that red mist descending 
tunnel vision, things like this. Um, all the hallmarks of combat stress reactions. And as Jonathan Shea um, rightly points out in his own work focuses on, there is a link between combat stress reactions and later traumatic experiences, PTSD and the like. More interestingly for this discussion is Odysseus. He, are, he uses Odysseus and his story in the Odyssey as almost a, um, a metaphor for the veteran returning home. So all the issues that Odysseus undergoes, he uses them in a very metaphorical sense. Now, of course, a historian, like we, we enjoy reading this kind of analysis, but of course, it's not historical. Um, it is just an interesting take on a fictional piece of work, which I certainly don't begrudge. And I don't think any historian begrudges that kind of analysis. Historically speaking, this becomes a bit more problematic. Some writers have tried to argue it goes back as far as the Epic of Gilgamesh. You know, I found one paper by an academic in India who argues it's apparent in like four, 5,000 BC Indian texts, the Ramayana, I think it is. So, you know, there's this real desire to push the origin of PTSD, the origin of combat trauma um, as far back as we can. Within Greek history, which I think is the area it's, it's studied in the most, the earliest case that needs explaining is the story of Epizelos. Epizelos is an Athenian hoplite, that is a heavy infantryman, um, who is fighting in the battle lines of the Athenian army against the Persians, the mighty Persian army, at the Battle of Marathon. So we're talking 490 BC. This is probably the earliest concrete historical case that needs explaining. Um, and of course, it exists in the work of Herodotus, commonly considered the first proper historian in the uh, Western literature record anyway. So Herodotus says, does he say Epizelos is a, a citizen soldier serving as a hoplite for the Athenians? I would love it if Herodotus was ever that specific. That would make me so happy. Um, no, you have to sort of read between the lines. He is described um, fighting in the front lines. Because he's fighting in the front lines, you can deduce within the Athenian army that that makes him a hoplite. Ultimately, the ranks of their phalanx are made up of hoplites. Um, light infantry, archers, cavalry are not ever described as the front line. The front line specifically refers to the ranks of the phalanx. To be in the phalanx at this point, he must be a heavy infantryman. He must be a hoplite. Because he's a hoplite, we can now extrapolate. Because he's on the front line, we know he's a hoplite. Because he's a hoplite, we know he's a citizen militiaman. As an Athenian, he is civically obliged to perform this military service. He is not a professional in any way, shape or form. And actually in this period, arguably later as well, but specifically in this period, the Athenian hoplite is just not trained for what he is doing. You know, he might do a drill now and then. He might go and um, certainly get himself physically fit in the gymnasium if he is rich enough to afford to do that. Um, however, this is we should not envisage a man who is prepared for war, who is drilled in the mechanics of combat in any way, shape or form. This is a man who... Any experience he has of fighting is literally in battle itself, nowhere else. This is interesting. So as you say there, he is not a professional soldier, as it were. What happens to him during the Battle of Marathon? Well, he is fighting heroically. Herodotus is very clear on this. He is fighting heroically in a very manly way. He even emphasizes his masculinity. He uses the word man. Um, he refers to the Agathon Andra. So this kind of... Uh, this sort of brave, courageous man, really emphasizing his masculinity. And there's kind of a reason he's building this story because of what happens next. So as he is fighting at his most manly, he sees opposite him a giant phantom of an enemyman uh, in the Persian line. He, this man is described as having a particularly large beard, which is a hallmark of Greek masculinity. It's not as weird as it sounds. So he has this giant beard, so large it covers his shield. That's how big this man's beard is. And he moves towards Epizelos, hacks down the man to Epizelos' left, kills him dead, passes over Epizelos, doesn't even acknowledge him, and then continues fighting the Athenian line. Epizelos sees this happen, sees the man to his left die in what is presumably a very violent and horrific manner. And then as this phantom enemy soldier passes him by, Epizelos is immediately struck blind. And Herodotus tells us this and then says, even though he was not hit 
by either arrow or sword or spear or any weapon. No weapon touches him, but he is immediately blinded for no apparent reason. So Herodotus tells us this story, and he tells us this not in a, um, a roundabout or here's this kind of rumor that I've heard. He specifically says this is the story that Epizelos tells people on the streets of Athens. So we don't 100% know that um, Herodotus heard this firsthand from Epizelos, certainly possible, but it's a story he certainly heard from someone who did hear it, and it's a story Herodotus definitely believed. And what's quite interesting about this, when, I, when we go back to the fact that he's constantly reasserting this idea that Epizelos was very brave, very manly, doing very brave, manly Greek things, and killing Persians like he should, but then he goes blind. You feel a lot of this is to kind of explain to Herodotus' readers and to his listeners um, that Epizelos was not a coward. You know, he has gone blind and this isn't because he's tried to run away from battle. It's not because something's gone wrong. It's not because he's a bad person in any way. He did this at the moment he was most virile, uh, most aggressive and his most idealized Athenian um, behavior. Everything Athens wants him to be, he was being. And at that point, he went blind. And of course, to the modern mind, what we have here is a man in combat, sees death before him, is immediately uh, faced with his own mortality from this huge figure of a man. The fear that must be going through this man's body, that his entire embodiment will be feeling fear at this moment. Um, and he immediately goes blind for no physical reason. To a modern psychological perspective, this just screams psychosomatic blindness because there's no logical reason he's gone blind other than his mind has switched off. He has switched that, um, that visual sensor. I don't want to see this anymore blindness so you mentioned how he's going around the athenian agora later talking about what's happened to him how is he treated by the athenians in the aftermath of marathon really well um now this is where we have to piece things together um whilst i would love to say oh well i can now discuss the biography about him written by plutarch i cannot uh, no such thing exists. His story is literally six lines of Greek in Herodotus, and that's it. Um, he then is just kind of mentioned elsewhere in passing. So we've got to piece a lot together. However, there are certain things we can deduce about his story and about his reception. That's what we're talking about, his legacy and his reception, the legacy of his story. First things first, by the time Herodotus is writing, which is... It's always a bit suspect trying to put a date on when Herodotus is writing certain elements, but we're definitely talking at least 30, 40 years afterwards, as sort of a minimum, if not maybe even later. So the fact that his story is picked up by Herodotus tells you that it is still about, it's still being told. Herodotus chooses to memorialize this story at the end of the Battle of Marathon, possibly the most important battle that does actually occur uh, in his histories. It's probably that and Plataea are the two big ones, maybe Salamis. Um, but, you know, the fact that this is the only real story, the individual story he chooses to memorialize about this battle. So it gives you an idea of the importance he thinks it holds. Athens, uh, as a state, decided to memorialize as you'd expect, they decide to memorialize the Battle of Marathon on a massive painted mural, the painted stoa in the Agora. So on this mural are loads of um, important events in um, Athenian history, Athenian mythological history. So we have things like seen from the Battle of Troy and the Trojan War, obviously known from the um, Homeric poems. But we also have um, scenes from the um, war with the Amazons, in which the Athenians and the Amazon warriors, the, the female warriors, have a huge Amazonomachy, the great war with the Amazons. So it goes through all these um, mythological events, really important mythological events in Athenian history, and it ends with the Battle of Marathon. So it gives you an idea of where they placed Marathon within their own history. And within this mural of the Battle of Marathon, we are told by more than one source that Epizelos is in it. We're not told how we know he's in it, so we, we, he's not, he doesn't seem to be named in it. And we don't know if perhaps he's clearly identifiable because he somehow is going blind. That might be one way. It could be just literally folklore, you know, on that guy's epizelos. You, you know how these things work. But what's interesting is we're told he is identifiable and Miltiades is identifiable. Miltiades is, of course, the general, the mastermind of the victory at Marathon. So the idea that our sources are telling us you can identify the mastermind and this bloke who went blind. 
this gives you an, <laughs> this gives you an idea of just how um, how well received his story was, just how important his story was, um, and the the legacy, the lineage of it. We can actually follow it this lineage into the Roman period. The Roman writers are still talking about him in passing, but they're talking about him. Uh, Plutarch mentions him, for instance. And one of the things I love about Plutarch's short account of, of his story is Plutarch likes this story so much, or perhaps the works he read like this story so much. Plutarch uh, gives us a name change. He's no longer called Epizelos. He's called Polyzelos. Now, Epizelos quite hard to translate Greek names, but Epizelos is kind of like, look at him, he's quite uh, imitable. He's someone you want to kind of look up to. Polyzelos takes this somewhere completely different. This is someone who's very, 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 uh, well, zealous is where we get the word from. Um, but, you know, this is a guy who you really want to emulate, you know. So he, his very name suggests just how important his legacy and his lineage have become. The other thing I love about the Roman uh, sources we have on him is he gets a promotion. He is no longer just a man in the front lines. He is one of the nine commanders at Marathon. So he's gone from just being a normal hoplite to now being a general. Um, and again, you wonder, oh, what's that about? Uh, it, it could just be an error. It could just be mistranslations and you know a misreading of work and stuff like that. Or embodies how his story, the importance of his story, tells us just how he was received you know this guy was so important within the narrative of marathon his experience was so important that surely he can't be a normal hoplite surely he needs to be he has to have a great name that tells everyone exactly uh what we should do with him and that is emulate him so the the way he's received is he is adored he is loved um he is so famous within his time period and so famous afterwards that his what you and I might refer to as a really traumatic event um, doesn't have the lasting trauma through uh, poor reception by the society who takes him. You know, he's he's not looked down on. He's not um, alienated. He's not isolated. A lot of the feelings that we hear modern veterans have, especially when they have uh, PTSD-like symptoms, um, Epizelos does not have. Uh, there is no evidence for that whatsoever. But what he does have is a psychos well, what we would call a psychosomatic form of blindness. No question about that. But that does not bring uh, negative connotations on him. Do you think the Athenians, given how religious they were in the 5th century BC, do you think the Athenians think that there was a religious element of Epizelos being struck down in the midst of battle in this amazing event? I say amazing, but by that I mean this extraordinary event no absolutely um you're spot on here so the greeks in general um of course to them we like to compartmentalize religion and life and as a separate thing to the greeks everything had religion in it and so you you don't separate religion from anything else um they understand they understood the world they explain things through religion so it's no surprise that Ephesus goes blind after seeing this ghostly phantom-like figure and that's that's the term um herodotus uses he calls it a phasma which is um not a god but like a divine presence so to speak um and it's what we call an epiphany so greek warfare is filled with epiphanies which is uh, this kind of divine presence on the battlefield or around the battlefield so this counts as one of the many epiphanies and for the battle of marathon he's not the only one Perhaps the most famous is the meeting of Pheidippides with Pan whilst he's running back from Sparta um, before the Battle of Marathon. He bumps into Pan and then Pan basically says, if you start worshipping me, I'll help you at the Battle of Marathon. You know, So um, Epizelos is within a long tradition of um, divine epiphanies. So it, it does make sense that he would have conceptualised this, all the Athenians would have conceptualised this as a form of epiphany. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. And it therefore allows them to make sense of what's occurred. It begs the question, how Epizelos' experience at Marathon, how common a case do you think this is what he experiences on the battlefield? Do you think this is a unique case or could it have been a more regular occurrence that we just don't hear of in the sources? I think the blindness is quite unique um, it's not a common symptom even today. Um, it is a very unique set of symptoms. Of course, we do have examples of it happening um, in the modern day. There's some horrific 
reports in Cambodia during the killing fields and things like that, um, of things like this occurring. It's not within the realms of impossibility. That's why we can take this story quite seriously. But on the other hand, this is not a common thing to occur. Um, Because the other thing about this form of traumatic blindness, if we want to call it that, is normally it comes to an end. You do regain your sight. Epizelos does not regain his sight. So immediately that's an anomaly. This is why when I said earlier about we tr- I try and move away from PTSD as a diagnosis, this is one of the reasons why. Because that doesn't fit the diagnosis. That doesn't fit our medical understanding. However, that doesn't mean it's not worth talking about. On the one hand, his blindness, no. It's so unique, it's worth talking about. I think if it occurred more, we would hear about it more because it's so strange. On the other hand, the idea of fear consuming an individual so apparently, we do hear of. One of my favorite stories um, comes from the Battle of Canaxa. The Battle of Canaxa is 401 BC. It's, it's accounted in Xenophon's Anabasis. So Xenophon's Anabasis is his recording of his time in a massive mercenary army for Cyrus the Younger. So he's one of 10,000, well, actually more than that, but the supposed 10,000 Greeks um, in a Persian mercenary army to go and fight um, for the, uh, the crown of the Persian Empire. They meet the uh, army of Artaxerxes at the Battle of Canaxa, and Xenophon gives a riveting account. Um, and there's this beautiful moment of human experience in combat where the chariots of the Persian army come charging at the Greek part of the line. And Xenophon basically tells us that the Greeks opened up their phalanx to let them through. Ha! Problem solved. <laughs> um, however, one man didn't get the memo fundamentally one man is said to be so struck by fear he doesn't move now anyone who is sort of a passing interest in combat stress and combat stress reactions will immediately start talking to you about what's called um fight or flight syndrome you know it's kind of that pop psychology explanation for human action uh, especially when they're feeling fear um, and that misses a very important element of human behavior which is fight flight and freeze because another reaction to fear is to not do anything. And there's this lovely moment where Xenophon shows us exactly that. A man was so struck by fear by what he saw, his mind cannot compute everything that's going on in a fast enough way, so he does not move at all. The freeze of fight, fight, and freeze. So Epizelos's, um emotional experience is not unique. Fear is apparent throughout the source material. No question about that. Um, We see other people freezing in war. In the Iliad, for instance, there's a couple of examples in the Iliad as well. So this is not unique. I mean, to give you an idea of just how predominant fear is in the Greek mentality of warfare, um, I've talked to you already about Pan. So the the Athenians uh, believe that Pan is involved in the Persian Wars. And of course, Pan is the inducer of emotions that come from nowhere. It's one of his many roles. This is where we get the word panic from. It's not a word the classical Greeks use very much, if at all, really. It's used slightly later. But he's certainly discussed in this area of warfare. Um, So he creates this uh, spontaneous fear that is inexplicable. Um, Often happens at night, um, where armies just lose their I won't swear, but, you know, they lose their, uh, their sort of um, their decorum, shall we say. (laughs) They lose their, uh, their discipline for no apparent reason. So the Athenians have Pan. The Spartans don't have Pan. Well, they don't talk about Pan, but they do talk about Phobos. Now, Phobos is the son of Ares. Phobos is the deities, the personification of fear. And the Spartans have a temple dedicated to him. So it's a really interesting moment where even the Spartans, who, you know, we like to stereotype as this sort of hardcore headbanger kind of military system which they weren't but it's the way we like to conceptualize them and they have this deification of phobos that they take very seriously and they really respect and phobos is of course where we get the word phobia from he is literally the personification of fear itself and it's interesting that the spartans and athenians both have their own conceptualization of fear in combat Um, and it's something they really respect so epizelos is not unique in this respect. He is perhaps an extreme version of what the Greeks expect to see in combat. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 's keep on the Spartans for a moment. Do we have any evidence in the ancient sources that points to combat trauma felt among any Spartan soldiers? Do you know the biggest case study of Greek soldiers hoplites exhibiting any form of PTSD like symptoms or PTSD like things is actually a Spartan. He's a guy called Clearchus. He's my favorite Spartan if you can have one. <laughs> Clearchus the Spartan. Clearchus, we know he was active towards the end of the Peloponnesian War, possibly earlier, but we don't have any concrete account of it. Um, but we know definitely when Xenophon takes over the writing of the Peloponnesian War. So, of course, everyone, everyone thinks about the Peloponnesian War and the history of the Peloponnesian War being written by Thucydides. And they forget that Xenophon actually finishes the war. Um, and in many respects, what Thucydides brings in political exposition in uh, sort of a, a his real political focus Xenophon really humanizes the war after that he's definitely my favorite of the two accounts so Xenophon takes over after this and when Xenophon takes over Clearchus appears the reason why I'm kind of emphasizing this is because Clearchus ends up as a commander in the mercenary army of Xenophon's and Abbasis Xenophon discusses Clearchus as someone who knew him and met him so that's important for basically everything else I'm about to talk about. reason why I like Clearchus is because Clearchus basically goes a bit off the rails. He becomes too Spartan for the Spartans to a point where he gets sent to Byzantium to try and control the area. He's too violent, too aggressive for the locals, and they kick him out. The Spartans don't particularly like this, but they put up with it. They send him back. And of course, there's basically mutiny in the city. So he takes over in a very violent way and he has a, a force that he basically creates himself to control the city. And Sparta send an army against him to get him to leave. Now, any rational person would kind of panic and run away. Clearchus is not a, a rational person. He enters the field against the Spartan army to basically try and beat them, to leave him alone. Um, he loses, and then he runs away to um, Cyrus's army in, the, in, uh, in Asia Minor. So, you know, when we talk about Clearchus, first of all, he, the Spartans thought he was too extreme. So when Clearchus takes over uh, one of the commands of the, the Greek mercenaries in Cyrus's troops, um, Xenophon becomes one of the men under his command. So when Xenophon writes about Clearchus, he writes it as someone under his command. Clearchus is described as very violent. He has violent outbursts. He is very prone to becoming very aggressive. Starting, He actually starts a fight with one of the other Greek mercenary commanders and takes a gang of soldiers and basically starts a mini battle in camp 
So he's described as very prone to violence. He's described uh, by Xenophon as what's called a philopolemos, a war lover. Um, so extreme was his love of war, Xenophon tells us, when he received lots of money from the Persian prince, rather than any other Greek person would have done, which is spend it on drink, spend it on women, spend it on young boys, you know, all the things a Greek man would expect to do. Clearchus spent it on more soldiers to go out and wage more war as a mercenary commander. He was obsessed with it. So this is the, um, this is the image that um, Xenophon describes. He is a war lover and he is also a lover of danger. We explicitly told this. He will uh, basically go running into danger in battle. He, and um, whilst men, his men were afraid of him, his men did not like him. Um, in fact, he did not have any friends. He was the commander, Xenophon tells us, that you would always want to be leading you. So this is a man who is perfect in the combat environment. Everything you want from a combatant, from a combat leader. Outside of that, he cannot cope with civilian life. He cannot cope with human relationships. He cannot cope without warfare being a constant. So historians have really isolated on his mini biography that Xenophon gives us of him and gone, this, these are all the hallmarks of a modern veteran who cannot adapt to civilian life, to peace. And he's, he's exhibiting all the kind of the symptomatic issues that we'd expect to see. Issues with close relationships. We've got um, hypervigilant states. Um, he's uh, hypersensitive to uh, sort of the arousal state that combat brings. You know, he is quick to anger. He is uh, in love with violence and warfare itself. He doesn't understand perhaps what you and I might consider normal social contracts between people. Um, if you annoy him, he will just hit you. If you annoy him too much, he may try and kill you. Um, and to him, this is normal. His behavior is so extreme that the Spartans can't handle him. Right? So this is uh, one of the cases that, yeah, absolutely, we um, historians do jump on. There are issues with describing him as having PTSD. One of them is you don't actually know from the source material what he was like before. So he may have just always been like this. And this is the problem with diagnosis versus like phenomenon. So yes, he exhibits a really interesting case study of a phenomenon. The problem with that phenomenon is we don't actually know if warfare has changed him or not. Um, we don't know if he was always like this. Um, so you can't really align him with PTSD in that way. What we can do is look at him as a really interesting case study of how uh, a person struggles if they are so consumed by the military environment, so consumed by combat and their role within it, how they struggle to cope transitioning to a peaceful life, how they struggle to cope with citizen life. And Xenophon lays this out to bear amazingly um, about a man he knew personally. Well, that must make Xenophon such a useful source, as you say, if he knew this person firsthand, if he witnessed it within the army's ranks. He must be one of the best sources in the ancient world to provide us any possible information about abnormal military behaviour within the army. Absolutely. Um, other sources do it, but usually as a way of trying to explain like morality or ah, not so much morality, but more bad behaviour. So Thucydides sometimes uses these to show that a commander does not have control. Uh, whereas Xenophon is much more interested in the in the individual, in the experience of the individual or individuals. There's an account in his Anabasis in which he describes the army after the Battle of Canaxa. Basically, the Greek army is now running for their lives. The 10,000, I use that term loosely, are now trying to get home. And they're in the middle of bleeding Babylon or you know Babylonia. Um, and they need to get all the way to the Black Sea. So this is over a year-long march. And it's a fighting retreat throughout it's basically bravo 2-0 for the ancient world this is such a fascinating account if anyone is dabbling with oh i'd like to know more about greek warfare read his analysis it gives you everything you want to know about the experience and the issues that they're facing so he gives us an account where they basically have to storm a fortified position it may even be a town i think it's a town a fortified town and they need to control it um, so they can get through um, a pass because remember they're constantly being ambushed they're constantly being attacked in their retreat he describes uh, the entire uh, assault um, and there's this really horrifying moment where 
the women and children in the town are jumping off a cliff to get away from the Greek soldiers. They are so afraid of what might happen to them if the Greeks get into the city. There's no good side and bad side in this story. There's no good and evil. None of this, you know, Nazis versus Churchill rubbish. Everyone is a threat. So we hear a really horrific image. And remember, it's Xenophon telling us this story. Xenophon is in the Greek side explaining that the women and children, are, especially the women, are jumping off the cliff. They would rather commit suicide than be captured, potentially sold into slavery um, or even slaughtered in their droves. And Xenophon actually describes trying to catch one, trying to stop them, get a hold of them before they jump. And he doesn't. He fails. Um, so you've got this really poignant, horrific, nasty moment of someone committing suicide and a Greek soldier, Xenophon himself, trying to stop it and failing. Xenophon is the only source who talks like this. He's the only person who uses his own personal experience, other people's personal experiences, to such a poignant and vivid level um so in that respect yeah he's amazing he's absolutely amazing for this kind of thing he's also not afraid of talking about this kind of uh experience he describes at another point um his own army in which case a point where he has a bit of command um so these are troops sort of under his command as well where they have got too excited they are, they are within the Kerasuntians, I believe it is. So they've made it to the Black Sea and they've got too excited because they think they're home and dry now. And basically they lose all discipline and end up, a group of them, charging at the elders of a community, the Kerasuntians' elders, and stoning them, throwing stones at them. Um, because of this loss of discipline that's going on, they basically feel that they've been aggrieved and, you know... Um, who cares about the people around us? And Xenophon describes his attempts to try and stop them from doing what they're doing. He cannot control their erratic behavior. So he's not afraid of even portraying himself as uh, a less than perfect commander, uh, having less than perfect control over his disciplined troops. Of course, he then uses this to talk about how he's morally perfect and no one else is. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's not, a, he's not a perfect human being. Let's not pretend he was. But his accounts are vivid. Um, they are also, uh, they're not sugar-coated. They're definitely not sugar-coated. And that's one of the things we don't get. I mean, even outside of Greek warfare, there's nothing like him in Greek warfare at all, in Greek literature at all. Nothing like him at all. The closest would be Athenian drama. Athenian drama goes into more of the emotions involved, but no, nothing like the liter in the other literary works. Closest you'd expect to find it is someone like Caesar's Gallic Wars or something like that. And God almighty, he does not get into this kind of detail. You know, he's got his own political agenda going on. Um, so yeah, Xenophon is really unique in this instance. Well, looking at some of those case studies you mentioned earlier, Epizelos and Clearchus, is that right? Clearchus, yep. How have they been treated in the 20th century, in the 21st century, when looking at combat trauma in the ancient world? Oh, now this, this does get interesting because Epizelos in particular has been jumped on as a case study for well over, it's over a century now. Earliest example I've found is from 1919. So in 1919, the Great War has just come to an end. You've got all these men coming back uh, especially in the UK, um, and you've got this issue, this new issue, which has only been identified since about 1916. It's been talked about within academic circles properly, uh, which is, of course, shell shock. Now, shell shock, well, as anyone who's read on the First World War, shell shock had a very rocky start as a diagnosis. Ultimately, people were identifying symptoms like blindness, loss of uh, hearing, loss of smell, things like this, with no real physical etiology. So what I mean by that is there's no physical origin to it. Some of them did, and that's certainly where we get the model of shell shock, the idea that, you know, the hypothesis that it's to do with the um, experience of uh, mortar explosion, you know, shell fire and, and the like. Um, so there were some physical explanations, but it didn't explain everything. So what the medical world had to do was to rely on the very new discipline of psychology to explain this phenomenon. Now, the problem psychology has had during this period was it was always considered a bit wishy-washy. So, you know, oh, well, it's in the mind. Well, that's your weakness. So, you know, this is where we get the really 
heartbreaking stories of uh, people exhibiting shell shock symptoms um, being put in front of firing squads for cowardice, for desertion, things like that. So it's not really a surprise that the discipline who's looking for credibility, who's looking for an ability to explain to the world what's happened to these men, look to the past to prove that this is not new. You know, this isn't something we've made up. This is something that's always existed. So we see 1919, a letter to the Science Journal. Someone literally just quoted Herodotus' story of Epizelos. And then at the end, just wrote a simple sentence. Could this, perchance, be the first case of shell shock? You know, that's, in, that's interesting. Um, I think it's wrong. And it's not unique. Um, other academics had done similar things with um, hysteria. You know, they'd aligned it to hysteria, and a lot of people had argued that hysteria has an ancient precedent as well. Um, the reason for this is lineage, which gives legacy. So ancient lineage gives a legacy. It gives legitimacy to the new diagnosis. What we then see is by the 1920s, when shell shock had been banned, especially in Britain, it had been banned as a term to be used in the British Medical Journal, for instance, banned it for a few years. No one could publish on the topic. Um, we even, um, is it the Southborough Report, uh, basically advises that they stop using the term. They stop using shell shock. They start talking a lot more about war neuroses. It's not shell shock, it's different. Um, and again, Epizelos gets that. So it's immediately, okay, it's not shell shock, but Epizelos still has this new thing we're talking about. And we see this um, continuously. I've, I've, I've collated cases that go from 1919 all the way to the modern day. You can see it time and again. Different um, explanations. So hysterical blindness, um, just general battle hysteria. Um, we see conversion disorder. Uh, lots of different titles thrown at him, but it's consistent. Whenever someone wants to discuss... It's hard to find a generic term, but what we're talking about here is combat trauma. Right? So it's combat psychological injury. That's what we're talking about here. doesn't matter what diagnosis, what model you want to throw at it. Epizelos has always been used to fit it because he has no physical origin to his symptoms. So he's always a model people want to use. He's always the best model. The problem is his story is tiny. And so you then go, Epizelos had this. Now let's talk about something else. Uh, <laughs> so it's kind of in passing, which is a bit frustrating because then they don't get to talk about the really interesting things. So my work collated these examples, not to show that this phenomenon has always existed, but actually to show that modern medical literature is ignoring the more important bit of his story. So the important bit of his story is no longer that he went blind in battle. We've done that to death. And we've shown that, you know, throwing diagnoses at him just kind of make us look a bit silly because it keeps changing. And the reason for that is because medicine is not a hard science. Medicine is a social science. So it evolves, it changes, and um, society impacts it as much as biology does. So what interested me, and then what very quickly concerned me, was that stories like Epizelos, stories like Clearchus, I mean, they've even said it of Alexander the Great, these stories have started to be used, not to say that PTSD existed in every time period, but to actually argue for modern therapeutic ideas. So Clearchus had this, uh, Epizelos had this, and the Greeks cured it through these methods, and we should use those methods. This, for me, is now a problem. This is no longer an academic debate. This is no longer that, oh, it's just an interesting conversation to have. You are now talking about affecting therapy. You're now talking about affecting, directly affecting the lives of veterans. We have taken a big leap from Jonathan Shea, who used the Iliad and the Odyssey that we talked about at the beginning, who used them to help veterans talk about their own experiences. You're now using ancient history to come up with anti-pharmaceutical um, solutions I've seen. You're talking about um, particular talk therapy ideas. You're talking about the use of rituals to help um, veterans. This is, for me, dangerous if you're using the ancient world to validate this. 
So that's where I got really interested. So we've seen this evolution uh, in the 20th and 21st century from, oh, isn't this interesting, to actually I now want to use the ancient world to validate my new idea. And this is where, for me, this is, this is not acceptable. This cannot be done without historical diligence. So this is where this is really frustrating. You'll have this as a massive historical lover, um, and many of uh, the rest of us have had it, which is where science is now being used in place of historical methods, because it's the idea the scientific method is the best one. That's all well and good until you start talking about medicine. Medicine is a social science. You cannot remove medicine. Psychiatry cannot be removed from the society who's talking about it. So Xenophon, let's go back to him, describes Clearchus as a war lover. Now, modern day, a war lover, that's someone addicted to war. Surely. But is that what Xenophon actually meant? A war lover in the ancient Greek world, he's not unique. Philopolemos is used at other times. Uh, Alexander the Great, inevitably, is referred to as one a couple of times. Um, Agesileos, he's the Spartan commander. And another friend of Xenophon's, oddly enough, um, he's described as one as well. Now, Xenophon is not describing Agesileos as a war lover because it's a bad thing. Because uh, Xenophon loved the man. He really looked up to Agesileos. Um, so you've got, to, you've got to really start to pick apart, well, actually, what do they mean when they say that? When we hear that someone is exhibiting mania in the Greek sources, what we would literally translate as madness. To the Greeks, madness did not just exist in the head. It did not exist as an as a intellectual state. This may be getting a bit heavy, but you know, uh, we, you didn't separate mind from body until basically is it um, Descartes. You know, I think, therefore I am. It's kind of the building block of modern psychiatry. Before then, how you think, how your uh, psychological state works is as much biological as it is psychological. So when they're talking about mania, they mean physiological issues as well. Um, so you can't unpick these things easily. You need a historian, a sociologist, a psychologist, a medical expert to kind of work together to do it. Uh, but ultimately, historians at this point, we're, we're pretty ignored. Uh, so so we're trying to you know punch our way into the conversation of course because you've really got to consider the importance of warfare the normality of warfare in ancient greek culture spot on yeah you're absolutely right and of course the experience of death this is where um this becomes really interesting ptsd as a diagnosis is a diagnosis determined by its origin if you do not have a traumatic event that can be pointed to PTSD becomes a very hard label to give you. Uh, not impossible, don't get me wrong, but it becomes a very hard label to give you because it is driven by um, its origin. The main thing they're looking for is, in particular, an experience of death or the threat of death. They're, we're talking at this point about combat. PTSD really gets lumped in as a military diagnosis, and it's not one. You know, anyone who's undergone violence, um, sexual assault, things like this, this in no way diminishes their PTSD, their complex PTSD, and we should never forget that. But ultimately, the debate in history at the moment is about military. So that's what I'm talking about here. And for military-induced PTSD, the most common origin is the threat of death, or indeed experiencing death, whether that's killing someone or having someone next to you die, or someone you know die, things like that. And it's the idea of mortality, as uh, that exposition of mortality, inverting the way you look at the world and, and so on now exactly as you say experience of war experience of death is very different culturally in the ancient greek world yes uh, there was a lot more death that death is particularly gruesome and violent in warfare this is very physical very close you don't have um, long-range weaponry that is killing people at a distance if you're killing someone or someone near you has died they are doing it uh, you know a, a distance of a breath so, yeah, absolutely. Um, you're right here. And of course, also mortality rates are generally higher. So they experience a lot more death than perhaps is normal um, in certain societies, um, such as our own here in the UK, for instance. And this must affect it. So actually, one of the things I, I often raise is whether or not death or killing or experiencing death is actually universally traumatic or not. And the inversion of that, of course, is could they experience something that you and I wouldn't consider traumatic, but would be to them, that actually would be very traumatic for them. 
And the, again, this is the difficulty. This is this is the the real issue we have when we're looking at the historical sources. And it just kind of identifies again. I feel like a broken record, uh, but the diagnosis issue is difficult. The phenomenon is less difficult um, if we can find it if, to talk about. Because the other thing we haven't discussed here, and the reason why Epizelos's story is probably more well received in Athens, is because Athens was their citizen body, so not the um, the majority of their um, society. It was a democracy, but not a very inclusive one. But their citizen body were all veterans because it was required of you. So another element of this is actually how does coming home to a society where everyone is a veteran or will be a veteran, um, how did that affect their experience? You know, does that nullify it in any way? Or indeed, one of the things I'm starting to look at now is could it make it worse? You know, if everyone's a veteran, your veterancy means nothing. You know, so your value uh, and, uh, or your performance in war is no longer potentially admired, but normal. And therefore, any deviance from acceptable norms is in particular looked down on. You know, these are the kind of questions you've got to start to ask. It started with such an interestingly fun, basic question at the beginning, didn't it? <laughs> but yeah, there's, you're absolutely right. There's just so much to unpick. and There's so much to look at. But as a result, we will learn more about ancient Greek society. And we will learn more about the potential experience of our own veterans today. Owen... That was an amazing chat. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No, no, thank you very much. Thank you for letting me um, let me talk about this. This is not uh, this is often a very controversial topic um, in the public field. I think you navigated it very well. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.